Well, that was exceptional, wasn't it? I uh, can't think of a, a better instrument to go with the text of that song. I, you know, the French horn is a meek brass instrument. And if you know the technical definition of meekness is power under control. You know, and we sort of had embodied in the French horn there the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very meek and mild until the end. And the grave could not hold him. Death lost its victory. The Trump, uh, Seth did such a good job painting that picture for us. And finally, that French horn lets go uh, with some of its power. And uh, uh, so too we get a glimpse into the life of Jesus who let go with power. Uh, and he veiled it and ascended back into heaven. But that power is coming again. And uh, the meek and mild-mannered Jesus no longer is meek, mild-mannered Jesus. He's the risen Lord of glory. And uh, so hopefully you'll remember that sound as that French horn let go and uh, soared into the heights. And uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to Psalm 9. And I admit I rigged this a little bit, but when I turned to Psalm 9, I found my handy-dandy... Reach Team Bookmark, and I'm sure yours is stuck in your Bible, and it's reminding you to be a disciple-maker kind of a person who, who's out reaching people in the community and all kinds of neat ideas, and I hope certainly the first one, you're, you're doing that on a consistent basis, is praying fervently for people by name, people who you love out in the community that you've met, uh, who... Uh, you really uh, love very much, and you want to share with them, hopefully in time, the, the thing that's meant the most to you, and that's the person of Jesus. So a lot of great uh, suggestions on that little bookmark, and uh, hopefully it's reminding you uh, some neat ideas uh, to try to minister to people in our community. So as you know, or you may not know this, but Pastor Tim in his absence has asked us to kind of march through the Psalms, and we have sort of done a variety of them throughout the book, and this morning we land on Psalm 9 together. Uh, if you need a Bible, I don't know, maybe perhaps you have uh, forgot your Bible, you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, we have plenty in the back, and does anyone need a, a copy of the Bible this morning to follow along? Uh, anybody like that? Okay. Good. All right. So, good. It's good to know that you know that you need to have a Bible or some form of it uh, when you come to Grace Church. That's a good thing. Uh, so, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm uh, 9 this morning. And as I was studying through this uh, psalm, uh, commentators are a little mixed in terms of uh, how it should be classified. So that's sort of a glorious thing as somebody who's trying to understand the psalm. That means you can just sort of willy-nilly and make whatever you want. No, I'm kidding. We don't want to do that. Uh, but I felt like the Lord uh, sort of laid a, a, a particular point on my heart that I think is germane for us uh, as we think about uh, what the message that God would have for us from Psalm 9. Um, what the Spirit of God really elevated as I studied this is really verses number 1 and 2. We're going to use verses 1 and 2 to sort of lay out a structure for the psalm for us, but 
Here the psalmist says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, and I will tell of all thy wonders. I will be glad and exalt in thee, and I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. So verse number one, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. So let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for help this morning, and then we'll make uh, hopefully some appropriate comments in relationship to what the Lord has for us here. Father, we thank You for... Uh, uh, the book of Psalms, uh, the Bible is truly our, our greatest gift. Without it, we wouldn't know about you, Lord Jesus, and uh, we certainly thank you for all that you've done, and truly you are the greatest gift as well. And uh, we thank you that uh, the Spirit of God dwells within us, and dear Spirit, you are the greatest gift as well. But these things would be unknown to us, except you had revealed yourself to us. And we thank you so much for the treasure of the Word of God, and particularly this section of Scripture. Lord, we identify with it. It's so very precious to us, and I pray that we would allow it to do uh, some investigative work in our own heart this morning, uh, that we'd be challenged and encouraged, and uh, hopefully walk away with uh, minds that are relieved because there's uh, a growing clarity and, and souls that are comforted. Uh, because uh, uh, there's understanding of what God is and who we are and where our place is in this vast universe of yours. And we thank you for it. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray these things. Amen. You know, it, it's been well observed uh, and by certain authors who write on, on the book of Psalms and what we call the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Uh, this is a, just a group of uh, books that uh, men have studied together as a unit, and they've observed this, that in every other part of Scripture, God speaks to man. In the poetic books, that's Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, those five particular books, in the poetic books of the Old Testament, however, man speaks to God. It is instructive that when man speaks to God, the structure he uses are the structures of poetry available to him. Uh, the poetry available to the writers was Hebrew poetry, uh, but it's instructive that they chose to use poetic structure. Well, why would they choose that? Well, poetry goes beyond the normal limits of human language. It exploits the full range of possible meanings of words in figures and pictures, and when one is trying to talk to God and to call God a superior being is not even to do it justice, he needs help. He needs to go beyond the limits of normal human language, and as such, the authors in this section of Scripture use poetic figures and, and words. Um, so in speaking to God, man doesn't merely want to report to God. Uh, he longs to recreate the whole of his experience underneath the realities that God has already set forth in the rest of the Bible. So God's omniscience and omnipotence, along with the full assurance uh, of his love, liberates the tongue of man to completely trust or entrust the whole of his experience into God's hands. And so it should be for you and for me. 
You know, the theology that is expressed in the Psalms in particular is not abstract, but it's very personal, it's relational, and it's practical. The grand truth that underpins every experience that the psalmist is communicating back to God is the ultimate confession that the God of Israel is the universal sovereign who rules justly over all the earth. Uh, now, Now, that statement is a very full statement, but it is this statement that underpins all of what the psalmists are saying, that God is sovereign. He's in absolute control of absolutely everything. And Unless we think that that control is a willy-nilly controller or sort of detached, uh, the psalmist understands from all of God's word that God's rulership is comprehensive, but it is also just. It's fair and it's equitable. Now, that's the part that we struggle with the most, I think, particularly against the backdrop of the truth that we grow to realize that we don't have as much control as we think we have. And as part of God's uh, uh, pursuit of justice, of what He knows to be fair and true, it includes things like sin, evil, and chaos. And as those things bite and eat at and touch us, we can tend to get a little exasperated or, or a little uh, uh, um, disconnected or call into question God's ultimate sovereignty. And if not His ultimate sovereignty, we may be tempted certainly to call into question His justice, His fairness. And so it's with all of this that the psalmist communicates and talks to God. He literally talks it out. And in doing so, we identify with it. Now, that's why we love the book of Psalms. How many of you have read a psalm this week? Anybody out there? Good, yeah. Probably a good percentage of you. Uh, we go to the psalms because they articulate sometimes the things we're afraid to articulate. Uh, but we see that men and women of faith that are thinking men and women of faith that are in fact divine, uh, are created in, in the image of God, vice regents of God, we're thinkers. We, we are trying to correlate all of this, and, and God wants that. And He calls that forth from us, and it ought to redound and end up in worship as we literally come up to the ends of our own mental capacities. And in that moment, we bow the knee intellectually, and we thank God that what He has said, that He is good in and Himself, we simply trust. Now, there's no greater glory in, in, I would say, at least that we can give God, is as thinking, breathing, living, image bearers, pursuing the questions as far as we can, and then just falling down on our knees and basking in the greatness and otherness of the God of heaven, and confessing that when it comes to God's due process of how he arrives at justice, we can't completely comprehend it. But we're thankful that God pursues his, his greatness and his glory, his holiness. And we know that what he's doing will fall out uh, for certainly his glory, but our good. And we trust and believe that. And that, my friends, is the essence of worship. 
The essence of worship isn't your ability to figure God out. The essence of worship is to try your very hardest to figure him out. And then at the end of that, bow the knee and be amazed. And we're going to see that this morning. Psalm 9 illustrates to the worshiper what it means to thank the Lord. And I want to hone in on this, to thank the Lord with all my heart. We read that in verse number 1. I will give thanks to the Lord, and then this little phrase, with all my heart. How many of you have expressed that phrase in your Christian life? God, I love you with all my heart. Have you ever said that? Okay, well, you really should if you haven't, because that, that's the whole goal of this dispensation. You know, you got to make disciples, and you've got to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. So, so yeah, you should, we should be, we should be uh, uh, a people who's very conscious of, of worshiping and loving God or being thankful in this context with all of our heart. And we really ought to be investigating, well, what is that? I mean, if you were asked to give definition, well, what does with all of your heart mean? Well, you, it, it's sometimes hard to put a finger on that. You know, the expression with all of my heart is a figure that can easily be lost to mere sentiment and meaninglessness. Right? All I ever said to my wife for 25 years is, Honey, I love you with all my heart. Honey, I love you with all my heart. That's all I ever said. That's all I ever... I didn't do anything. I just said that. You know, probably about six months into our marriage. <laughs> I was thinking, well, maybe it's... No, it's probably just six months. That phrase has become meaningless. It's drifted off into mere sentiment. And as believers, as we confess our love and thanksgiving to the Lord with all of our heart, we want to be careful that we're not just sort of expounding mere sentiment and some meaningless expression. So this figure, David, clarifies for every true worshiper of Jesus Christ, or in our context of Jehovah, who has come in the human flesh what it means, at least in part, at least from David's perspective, what it means to thank him with all of our heart. Verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 9 formulate a simple outline for what it looks like to be thankful to the Lord with all of our heart. Now, in taking this approach to the psalm, I'm not necessarily going to develop its historical context. That's a little bit of a mystery in Psalm 9. Um, I'm not necessarily going to observe the fact that David is calling down at some, some terms uh, judgment upon the enemies of God, and uh, we call that uh, 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 times when the believer is, is oh, the word is imprecatory, when we're asking God to do harm to, uh, or David asks God to do harm for the enemies. Now, we don't do that in the, in the church. We... Remember the base idea there is God vindicate your name, right? And in the Old Testament context, the way God vindicated his name according to the Mosaic Covenant was to exercise judgment on the enemies of God. In the church, God vindicates his name, continues to do that, but he does it in a different way. He transforms our enemies uh, into gospel-believing 
Jesus-loving, God-fearing people. That's what He did to you. And remember, you were an enemy of God. If you're here this morning, God vindicated His name in your life. Aren't you glad, as Gentiles, generally all of us are, God didn't handle us the way He handled the Philistines? Aren't you glad? I mean, we deserve the same thing. But this amazing thing happened. We who were not a people, as a result of the coming of the historic Jesus of Nazareth and fulfillment of the, the seed to Adam, the promise to Abraham, the, the, the law to Moses, the Messiah, this titled individual has actually come, and he's accomplished it all, and Jesus has literally turned salvation history upside down. And now as Gentiles, we don't get... <laughs> and remember, it's not that we're... You know, the Philistines had some issues. They had problems. You know, they, the things they loved to do weren't good things. And I would confess that as a Gentile before I came to Christ, I was just like them. I loved to do things that God said I shouldn't do. So, so I identify with the Philistines and the Amorites and the Jebusites and all the ites. You know, the, those are my peeps, man. You know? <laughs> I get him, and, uh, but thankfully God is handling us in a different way. He's, he's formulated the church, so a blessing, and we're thankful for that. So we want to pursue vindication. So, so in dealing with the psalm, I'm sort of extracting maybe not necessarily exactly the point why the psalm was penned, so I'm confessing that up front. What I want to do is throw open the hood this morning and try to get down and understand for a true worshiper of God, what does it look like to do worship with all of my heart. That's what I want to look at, okay? So don't rush up to me and tell me how I didn't quite handle this psalm. I, I appreciate that. Um, and um, So we're going to talk this morning about what does it mean to do something or to worship God with our whole heart. The first thing we want to see is, is well, let me give you the, the proposition. Here's the proposition. This is what I'm trying to prove from the psalm. Heartfelt thanksgiving... That's really what's that question here, right, in Psalm 1. Heartfelt thanksgiving is authenticated. It's authenticated by worshipful living, okay? So what the psalmist, I believe, is helping us understand is to mindlessly claim that I'm thankful with my whole heart. Mindlessly claiming that is evidenced by a life that isn't about the business of worshiping day-to-day, -day, okay, in real time. So hopefully we'll see that. So the first principle, then, that we derive from the psalm is that a heart filled with wonder, we just sang about that, and to God be the glory, a heart filled with wonder is genuinely thankful. Verses 3, uh, uh, we, we see it in verse uh, number 2, I will be glad, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 1, I give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all thy wonders. The true worshiper of Jesus Christ, Jehovah in this context, Jesus Christ in ours, is a person who lives in wonder in such a way that compels him to tell others of it. The Hebrew participle here is in a stem that indicates that its object, or its object, it produces wonder because it is marvelously extraordinary in its activity. Wonder. One of the things 
dear Christian saint, those of you who have been in the Lord for decades, you have got to battle with every thread of your person. Is that the truths that are articulated to you and have been now for 30, 40 years, you're losing the wonder of it all. Friends, if you lose the wonder, you have lost the ability to be thankful with all of your heart. You know, wonder is a function of what we meditate on. It's a function of what we think about. It's a function of what we press our mind to be amazed about. And here David gives us some things. This is what's sort of interesting. This is why I love working with children in the sense that they're always filled with wonder. It's real, it's simple, you know. Isn't God amazing? No answers. They're kind of half tired. And I say, kids, wake up. Isn't God amazing? And here's a little candy bar if you say yes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, yes, he's wonderful. Uh, no, children's hearts and minds are, their affections are awakened. They're, they're, they're curious. They're interested. They're, they have the possibility of a high degree of wonder. Don't lose that, dear saints. So what was so wonderful? What, what, what work was so amazing for David? Well, we see this really listed in verses 3 through 6. David wonders at how the Most High deals with his enemies. One thing that was just filled David with wonder was that how the Most High deals with his enemies. In our text in verses 3 through 6, he wonders at or is amazed in the way that God turns back his enemies. He turns them back in such a way that not only turns their influence back, but he, he causes them to stumble and perish. He, he, he causes them to embarrassingly be turned back. This is wonderful. David can't do this in battle. God does this in battle. God embarrasses his enemies when he turns them back. And as he does so, he, he doesn't do it with sort of, you know, wiping out in friendly fire some of the allies. He's precise, as you, you can read verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, I'm just walking through some of this. He does it by while, all the while, maintaining the just cause. The ends don't justify the means. The, the principle of truth and justice, he, he, he upholds it with perfection. He judges righteously. He, he, he has such an amazing ability to, in laser-like fashion, identify who the enemy is. Remember the sons of Korah as they stood against Moses. And remember, the earth split open in perfect puzzle-like shape to consume anyone who was a son of Korah, and it collapsed back in together so that in literally a flash, the family of Korah was done. But no other family member was harmed. These are like fashion. It could go to Achan and deal with Achan. God's amazing in the way he turns back his enemies. The text goes on to say, and if that weren't enough, God can rebuke whole nations. 
This is the corporate strength of humanity as they rise up with all of their power, certain in themselves to get the victory. And God laughs at that. And He turns whole nations back. It's amazing. He destroys the wicked, and He does so with with breathtaking efficiency. Our text says He blots out their name forever and ever. There are no monuments raised up to these people. He causes... um, He causes the wicked to come to an end in perpetual ruins, perpetual, you know. You know, you don't want to be in the ring boxing against God. Can I just say that? I mean, that is the height of insanity, and that's literally the height of the insanity of our own sin natures, isn't it? You know, that's how crazy we are in our sin nature. We start hating the authority of God in our life and rebelling against. It's just, it's breathtaking. But our point here this morning is David is, is filled with wonder. You know, the New Testament worship, too, should wonder at how Jesus, in a marvelously wonderful, extraordinary way, has handled our enemies. What are our enemies? Well, our primary enemy is, is our sin, our own sin nature. Jesus has rendered the power of sin in our lives. He has rendered it ineffective. He is in the cross and in His bodily resurrection. He has secured for you the ability not to sin, the ability for your sin nature to be found in perpetual ruins. For your sin nature never to ever have a monument erected in memory of it. He has enabled this at the cross. This is wonderful. This is amazing. These are the enemies that David himself Remember in his fall with Bathsheba that he himself needed, operated on? Because God hadn't or didn't or he hadn't responded, it caused his life to be in wreck and ruin. And if the Philistines cause trouble, that's one thing. But when you have made a wreck and ruin of your own family, that's another thing on a different scale. And that's what David did. God is amazing. He he gives you the ability to judge that old sin nature righteously, to rebuke the whole of it, to blot out its name forever and ever and cause it to be in perpetual ruin. I hope that thrills you as you deal with yourself and your own sin nature and fills you with wonder. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of the fact that Jesus Christ has shed His blood for your sin. And he's borne it on the tree, and you have been delivered from sin's power, sin's penalty, one day from its presence. So all that is involved in the life, death, and burial, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the future hope, believer, you possess that. And it is this that fills us with wonder. 
as the fabric of your soul, which is in wreck and ruin, not through the seams of your soul, but right through the very fabric of it, where nobody can treat it because you've been victimized by sin or, and you've participated in sin. And Jesus is capable of going into that fabric tear and sewing it up and repairing you with the joy of seeing you make a disciple and comfort somebody with the comfort you've been comforted with. Making you not only whole, but productive. That is amazing. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Death. Isaiah 25 teaches that we are under the sheet of death. We are in the shroud of death. It, it's always dealing its awfulness in our life. We're dying. But Jesus has come, and death now is to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. For me to, for me to live is Christ, to die is what? It's gain for the believer. Psalm 23, death is relegated to a mere comma. It's not that big of a deal for the believer. In fact, precious in the sight of God is the death. How about that for a paradox? Is the death of those who he loves, or his, his lovely ones, his saints. This is wonderful. This is amazing. And this is what we possess. So not only does wholehearted thanksgiving come from a wonder-filled worshiper over how Jesus has handled his enemies. Secondly, this morning, thanksgiving is truly heartfelt when the worshiper's gladness and exaltation is sourced in the Lord. And this is found in verses 7 through 10. You can kind of begin to read that while I just make some comments. Uh, the first thing that caught my attention is, but the Lord, in verse 7. But the Lord. And remember, we're kind of reflecting back to uh, verse number 2. I will be glad and exalt in thee. This is where we're getting this point. Exaltation simply means that there are habits in your life that demonstrate that it is the Lord that is the most important and valuable person in your life. The person you exalt in your life is the one you know the most about. David knew a lot about Jehovah. He knew from his Bible, and he viewed his life experiences through what his Bible had to say about the Lord. In verses 7 through 10, the Lord abides forever. He literally uh, uh, transforms my whole thought process as I'm exalting him. I'm no longer living in the confines of temporal, day-to-day -day realities. I'm immediately elevated into this forever as I exalt in, as I make very important in my life, God. He gives me a whole new perspective. It's a forever kind of a perspective. He establishes his own throne for judgment. Uh, he does it himself. He, he, no, no, no army... No, no people group does it for him. No, he just comes and stakes his claim. He, he is worthy of being exalted. He has power unlike anybody else. He will judge the whole world. And one he does, as we've already mentioned, he will do it righteously. You want to exalt this guy. This is the one you really want to make a lot of. 
He will judge his own people with equity. He's he's equitable. He will be a stronghold for the oppressed in times of trouble. You want to know this guy? Nobody can help you like God can in times of trouble. To know his name or his character inspires trust because he does not forsake those who who seek him and because his character is always true. It is impossible for God to be hypocritical. God is what his attributes are. You are not. You struggle with that. You long to be what you want your good attributes to be. But there's days where that just falls apart. (laughs) But God doesn't have those days, man. He says, I am love. He's love. Even into the depth of incomprehensibility. In heaven, we're going to learn a little bit more about God's love, but we're never going to wake up and go, oh, he really didn't mean that about himself. This new fact changes all of that. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So, in who do you rejoice? Who do you exalt? Who can claim that, uh, who, who can claim that you are thankful? Uh, I'm sorry. Um, who you exalt in? helps us to either authenticate our claim of being thankful to God with all of our heart, or it causes it to be sort of shallow and empty. So wholehearted thankfulness comes from a heart filled with wonder, specifically at how Jesus has dealt with your enemies, a heart that exalts Jesus. And and what I mean by that is has uh, things within its schedule, things within its mind, that, that demonstrate that God is the most important person in your life. And then finally, uh, t- tonight or this morning, uh, h- the heart that is filled with praises to the Lord in song is genuinely thankful. And we take this from uh, really 11 um, to 18. The psalmist talks about that song functions as a way to declare among the peoples his deeds. We did that this morning. And and hopefully your heart was filled and the overflow of that reality was the truth you were singing. Uh, There's two things here that David points out about the content of the songs he sings. Uh, The first one is this idea in verse 12. For he who requires blood remembers them. So the idea here is that that God uh, requires severe things in judgment. He does. He requires blood. Uh, But he still remembers them. So there's the idea is that, uh, that even in judgment, God is merciful. I tried to find an English word that sort of matches what the Hebrew is talking about, if I could pronounce it here, that God is magnanimous. This is the idea, that the song that David wanted to sing was to touch on this idea that God being so great and so out there is yet so personal and so interested, even though he requires blood, he still wants to be intimately and personally involved. And as we understand the outworking of salvation history, God has taken care of that blood requirement in the person of His own Son, Jesus Christ, who shed His blood on our behalf. We 
We just sang of that again this morning, right? So we have that substitute. So God's magnanimous. He, 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 even though He's big, He's very generous and forgiving, especially toward a rival like you and I, or someone who is much less powerful than Himself, like you and I. And He's touched us. He's kissed us. Mercy has kissed justice in the person of Jesus Christ, as the poets remind us. The second thing that fills David's song is not only that God is magnanimous, but that He's gracious. And the true believer understands that anytime God acts in behalf of us as believers, it's always a gracious act. We never want to forget that God somehow in the mystery of His governance of the universe allows the idea that people who deserve judgment can enjoy grace. That's mysterious. And He hasn't given us what we deserve. So every time we come to God, we come by nature of grace. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are always responding to God, interacting with God, from the perspective of grace found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? All that we have, we've been given. We've been given. We don't own anything. Um, A lot that can be said about that you can read there. So in conclusion this morning. So this morning, if we are to say, like David, that we thank the Lord with all our heart, We can do so with understanding of what it really means. It is a heart that is overflowing with wonder, particularly how God has dealt with your enemies. And that's working out in your life. Secondly, it's a heart that's exalting in the Lord. It's making a big deal out of God as representative by clear habits in your life. The person that you love the most, you make time for. You work hard at that. God understands you can't give him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and he doesn't expect that necessarily, except to be ever conscious of his presence in your daily life. But he he does show up to meet you graciously every morning. And figuratively, he sits there with his cup of coffee and his Bible, And he waits. And he waits. And then he closes his Bible and says, well, maybe we'll catch him tonight. So he comes before bedtime and he sits and he, I don't know, probably has a decaf coffee. (laughs) And he waits. And he waits. He says, okay, well, you know, I know I'm important to them. I'm sure they'll show up tomorrow. He shows up. He's got his coffee, and he's ready to talk, communicate. And he waits. He says, okay, all right. I'll come back tonight, maybe, or maybe at lunchtime I'll, I'll check in. And he waits. You see, we can claim that we're thankful with all of our heart, friends. But if there's nothing in your life that evidences the fact that you are exalting the God who created you, 
you're, in fact, not doing it with all your heart. God wants you to grow through that as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And disciples, these are the very simple things. Encourage your disciple to be filled with wonder at how God has treated his enemies. Encourage your disciple to exalt in the God of heaven. Put some things in their schedule that demonstrate that. And then finally, songs of praise. Music is a powerful thing, folks. You know, we've got to stop listening to what we listen to because we merely like it. We've got to begin to ask God, God, how can this part of my life serve you? How can, it, how can I fill my mind with music, which is powerful in terms of helping me remember, and God-honoring music, so that I am joining in the singing of your praise? I've got to figure this out, God. My radio, my CD, my playlist is yours, and it reflects your praise. So when these things are exist in our life and they're growing, friends, then you can affirm the truth. God, I love, I am thankful to you with all my heart. This morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, uh, you know, God created you, you're in His image, He loves you, uh, but you really can't really communicate with God until you have the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our great substitute. He's the one that we would encourage you to just embrace on His terms and come to the Lord Jesus and, and, and confess that you're a sinner, that you have no hope of heaven apart from Him, and you have no hope of healing the fabric of your soul until He becomes Lord in your life. Thank Him for His life, the fact that He suffered a horrific death on Calvary. He shed his blood and bore the wrath of God for your sin. Your sin. Your sin. Horrific. In that moment, God's wrath for you is satisfied. If you receive, who does God love the most? Jesus. You know, if you could care less about Jesus, I guarantee you, you know, if I could just put it in street language, God's not going to care about you much. You better start loving who God loves the most, and He loves His Son so much, <laughs> infinitely, eternally. And, uh, and when you love Jesus, the love of God is just shed abroad in your hearts. You want that, trust me. So we'd encourage you to do that. There's a discipler around you. If you have any questions, I'm sure they could talk to you about that and would love to do so. Let's pray.